From Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's Wednesday, December 26th. I'm Lisa Mullins in Boston. Today, the Russian parliament voted to ban Americans from adopting Russian children. One disabled adoptee tells us that his life in Russia would have been very different from his life now as a student in Texas. It's very uh, shocking to observe, you know, these nursing homes all over Russia. And you have these 18-year-olds graduating and just being basically thrown into these nursing homes with uh, older people. Also, a series of Christmas photographs with a historical tale to tell. PRI's The World is supported by Medtronic, demonstrating commitment to global economic, social, and environmental stewardship. Learn more in the 2012 Medtronic Corporate Citizenship Report, online at Medtronic.com, and by Focus Features, presenting the new film Promised Land, starring Matt Damon and John Krasinski, from the director of Goodwill Hunting, in select theaters Friday. I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World. Today, Russia upped the ante on the issue of adoption. The Russian parliament unanimously passed a measure that bans Americans from adopting Russian children. The bill now goes to President Vladimir Putin. The proposed adoption ban has a lot to do with a new American law that's called the Magnitsky Act. It prevents Russian officials who are accused of human rights violations from entering the United States. And Vladimir Putin has vowed to retaliate. Reporter David Herzenhorn is covering the story for the New York Times from the Moscow Bureau. What would be the immediate impact, David, if Vladimir Putin does sign this adoption bill into law? How many adoptions would it actually stop? So a senior Russian official said today that the immediate effect would be to put a stop to 46 adoptions that are currently in progress right now. Overall, there were about 1,000 Russian children adopted by Americans in 2011. And there have been more than 45,000 such adoptions since 1999. Out of foreign countries, Americans adopt more Russian children than anywhere else. But it's still not a huge number. There are more than 100,000 Russian children eligible for adoption in the country right now. Now, it's worth mentioning that there have been some pretty high-profile problems with U.S. adoptions of Russian children, some individual cases that are noteworthy. Can you uh, remind us what those are and tell us what place those have and what's happening in Russia now? This this issue was obviously quite sensitive because primarily a 2010 case in which, if you recall, a, an adoptive mother in Tennessee sent her seven-year-old son back to Russia alone on a commercial flight. There have also been sporadic other cases of abuse or even deaths. Uh, one case in particular, this law is named after a toddler who died in Virginia in 2008. His father left him in a parked car in the summer. He died of heat stroke. The judge in that case acquitted the adoptive father of manslaughter is a terrible tragedy, but ultimately accidental. So as upsetting as those particular cases are, there is something that, as you have said, is more political here, and that is the Magnitsky Act that was passed by the U.S. Congress. Explain what that is and how it enters into this. Well, the Magnitsky Act essentially is named for a Russian lawyer, Sergei Magnitsky, who died in a Russian prison after trying to expose a huge government tax fraud. And he was thrown in jail, allegedly denied proper medical care, and died. The founder of that firm, Hermitage, has been pushing lawmakers all over the world to consider sanctions against human rights violators from Russia. 
the U.S. Congress became the uh, first legislature to act on that. And so what we saw in Moscow was essentially the primary goal being to retaliate for that legislation. But we should understand that this is a very serious problem for U.S.-Russian relations. What's the, if you can unpack that a little bit, why an issue like this, like international adoption, why would that carry so much weight? Well, what happened in response to some of the abuse cases that we've talked about is that the Russians were threatening a ban on adoptions and an agreement was hashed out to provide more scrutiny. Secretary of State Hillary Clinton uh, and the Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov personally had a hand in reaching this deal that was ratified only this year. It just went into effect on November 1st and provides for heightened scrutiny and oversight of adoption cases. This adoption ban would undo it completely. And of course, from the American side, you would say, okay, if the Russian government is willing to break that agreement so soon after it was signed and ratified, are they trustworthy on any front? What does this mean for other agreements? David Herzenhorn, who's covering this story for The New York Times in Moscow. Thanks. Thank you. Alexander DeJamus spent most of his life in a Russian orphanage. It was specifically for children with disabilities. When he was 15 years old, he was adopted by an American family in Dallas, Texas. He is now 21 years old, and he wrote a letter to Vladimir Putin that is today being delivered to the Russian embassy in Washington, D.C. What did you write in that letter, Alexander? It is so transformational. Being in a family, living with a family, being loved, being cared for, you know, it is so important to every child that passing a law... Depriving, basically, children of the last chance for such a transformation is absolutely shocking to me and to a lot of loving families in the United States. So you're talking about your life now in Dallas. What what was your life like until you were 15 years old, a long time to spend in an orphanage? I was left at the orphanage by my biological parents right after I was born. I was born with uh, severe physical disabilities do you mind telling us the nature of your disabilities? I was born with uh, deformed hands. I'm missing a middle finger on each of my hands. And my legs, my lower limbs were deformed, preventing me from walking. So I used a small uh, a skateboard-like scooter my whole life, just pushing myself against the floor. And that's how I got around for most of my life. What kind of support did you have in the orphanages? Was there any kind of therapy? What were the conditions like? Because the orphanage was small, it wasn't as uh, bad as a lot of orphanages are in Russia. You know, we were provided equipment, I mean, wheelchairs and, you know, crutches. And there were times when the, the equipment would wear out. For example, you know, the wheelchair uh, would break and sometimes... Uh, People who were taking care of us would be reluctant to change it. And, you know, like, again, I said I was riding on my scooter my whole life, just pushing myself against the floor. And there were times when <laughs> one of the wheels would break on that scooter and I wouldn't get a new one for a while. So <laughs> there were times when I would just ride on two wheels. How did you end up coming to the U.S.? I came to the United States for medical treatment to have an amputation of lower limbs so that I would be able to wear prosthetics and walk. And uh, the host family that I stayed with, you know, our relationship became more than just a, you know, a formal relationship with a foster child. It became a very close unit, and we had enough time to finalize the adoption before I turned 16. 16 is the age limit. The age uh, limit for adoption? Yes, yes. So mainly you wanted to come here, obviously, so you could walk, so you got these uh, prostheses. You, you didn't plan on being adopted. But it happened, and 
You've done a lot. Uh, I mean, you have done an amazing amount. You're a student now at University of Texas, right? Yes. Studying yes. international relations. Yeah, and government, yeah. And you're a hiker. Can you tell us what you did over this past summertime? I'm actually not a hiker uh, at all. But uh, this summer, me and uh, in collaboration with uh, one of the organizations in Moscow and a few of my friends in Russia decided to hike uh, Mount Kilimanjaro. Uh, <laughs> good for a non-hiker. <laughs> yes, I'm, I'm prosthetic legs. And uh, we were doing it to raise awareness about disabled orphans in Russia and maybe present this as an inspirational statement that you can do this. I mean, this is the highest mountain in Africa and we're doing it on prosthetic legs, you know, and it took us about six days. And, and the last, the last day I just took my legs off and I was just crawling for 12 hours uh, to the last camp Why? <laughs> on my hands. Well, with prosthetics, it's very difficult. I hiked three days and an average 11 hours each of those days. And I don't have knee joints, uh, meaning that I have to, you know, every time I make a step, it's actually hard for me. So it was a, probably the most challenging thing I've done physically uh, in my life. Again, this was done to show people in Russia and the United States, you know, orphans that, that, that you know, don't be afraid. Each of us has, uh, you know, his own mountain to climb. Literally and figuratively. And, and Alexander, you go back to the same orphanage in Russia, don't you? Yes. Uh, I have visited Russia quite a few times since I've been adopted, which I believe you know, strengthened my perspective because every time I go back, I see, I see those conditions. You know, the conditions I grew up in. Last summer I went and a lot of my friends, childhood friends, have already graduated and I see... I can see what they're doing. A lot of them end up in nursing homes with aging people. It's very uh, shocking to observe, you know, these nursing homes all over Russia. And you have these 18-year-old children basically, you know, thrown into these nursing homes with uh, older people. It's shocking. And, and that's, why, that's why I wrote this letter, because uh, as a country, I mean, every time I go back, I see the same thing. I can see that my friends are just they're either using drugs or they're on the street or they're just they have nowhere to go. This law presumes that children in Russia will have a better life than they will in the United States. And that's such a false statement. And everybody in Russia knows that. Everybody. To me, it's absolutely just shocking. There, there are no words. There, there are no arguments that can ever justify this. Alexander Jamus, who's speaking to us from outside of Dallas, Texas. He is a former orphan in an orphanage for children with disabilities in Russia. And, Alexander, we've got some great photos of you in action on Mount Kilimanjaro. Our listeners can find them at theworld.org. Nice to talk to you. Thank you. Family photos can be more than personal snapshots. They're historical documents, and that's why a selection of family photos originally posted by the history website Retronaut caught our eye today. Here's the world's Alex Galifant. The photos are of a German couple, Anna and Richard Wagner. Each one was taken on Christmas Eve in their living room, 45 in all, from the year 1900 until the end of the Second World War. I asked Linda Haverty Rugg to take a look. She's the author of the book, picturing ourselves. I was struck right away by the age of the photographs. That is the fact that people that relatively early in the tradition of um, photography had hit upon the idea of charting their own lives through photographs. 
Sometimes it feels like this is all we do nowadays, and we're drowning in it. But in 1900, not so much. These photos were simply sent as annual Christmas cards to the Wagner's friends. Now there are visual anchors over time. Richard is pictured on the right, Anna on the left. There's a Christmas tree. They even kind of pose the same way each year. But the Wagner's also seem to be conscious of a story beyond their own. There's a photo from 1915, for instance, taken during the First World War. Behind their table, next to the Christmas tree, is a map of Germany that's marked with bold lines. During that winter, they were clearly tracing the movement of German troops, and that was part of what they wanted to show in the photograph. In another of the photographs, also during the war, the caption on the photograph said something like, during the coal shortage, um, and so they couldn't heat their room. And they might have written that because they wanted to explain to the viewer why they would be wearing coats in their living room. (laughs) But it also charts something about what was happening in Germany at the end of the war, namely that people were living in poverty. That photo's from 1917. Later in the series, things are looking up again. In 1927, the Wagners proudly display a newfangled electric vacuum cleaner. And there are the expected changes, too. The clothes, the graying of their hair. But to a remarkable degree, these are familiar photos. Photos that get at what all such projects do, whether it's a photo a year or every day. Are you constantly yourself throughout your life, or do you change radically? Are you always the same person? Then again, this isn't a series of self-portraits by an individual. They are two Whatever's unknown about their life together, the photos are a statement about the permanence of a marriage through a period of great turmoil. Plus, says Linda Haverty-Rugg, there's this. One of the questions I asked myself was whether this was a project that they had decided upon together or whether one of them had dictated that they were going to do this. We can't know for sure, but a family photo under duress, that is an evergreen holiday tradition. For the world, I'm Alex Galifant. You can see some of the Wagner's Christmas Eve photos at theworld.org. Later on our program today, the sounds of a really big glass harp. This is The World on PRI, Public Radio International. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from the Medtronic Foundation, advancing access to health care through global philanthropy. Learn more in the Medtronic 2012 Philanthropy Report online at medtronicfoundation.org. And by Focus Features, presenting the new film Promised Land, starring Matt Damon and John Krasinski, from the director of Goodwill Hunting, in select theaters Friday. I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World. There's a West African proverb the word of God and holy things and beautiful tales are found only in Timbuktu. The city in Mali was once a major center for trade and Islamic scholarship in West Africa. Hundreds of years ago, Sufi Muslims built shrines to their saints in Timbuktu. Today, those shrines and mausoleums are under attack. Sunni Muslim extremists seized control of Timbuktu and the rest of northern Mali earlier this year. Now they're destroying the religious relics, calling them idolatrous. Butch Ware is a historian at the University of Michigan who studies Islam in Africa. First, Butch, who are the Islamists in Mali, and why are they destroying these shrines? From all accounts, the main group is a group called Ansar al-Din, which literally means helpers of the religion. Like many of these sort of violent Islamist groups, a kind of hodgepodge of the refuse of the Arab-speaking countries, um, actually to the north, 
They're destroying shrines essentially because they see them as a form of polytheism, as a marker of unbelief. They see these tombs, which are venerated as the sites of interment of holy people, men and women, um, as places that are actually sites of worship, as if the people that are buried there are being worshipped in competition with the worship of the one God. And do you think that there's a subtext to it? The subtext to it, I think, um, is that it really constitutes a kind of war on previous uh, forms of Islamic authority. This forms a kind of spectacular, symbolic uh, violence. We're wiping the slate clean. We decide what Islam is from here on in. Okay, so these are Sunni Muslim extremists who are accused of destroying the shrines, the mausoleums. These are Sufi Muslim sites. What is the difference between the two branches of Islam? So I wouldn't actually characterize them uh, in, in that way. It's, it's sort of become common in the press to refer to these sorts of extremists as Sunni because that's what they call themselves. The so-called Sufi Muslims in Mali and West Africa and other places are Sunni Muslims. They identify themselves as Sunni Muslims, um, and they see these ex- extremists really as being people who are in some ways beyond the pale of Islam itself. So to, to characterize them as Sunni doesn't quite hit the mark. Now, within these West African Muslim communities, Sunni doctrinal positions and Sufi spiritual practices are connected to one another. And these extremists, that's a thing that they hope to separate. They see uh, Sufism as being something external and alien to Islam that needs to be excised from it. Could you describe the mausoleums themselves for us? I've not seen the ones uh, in Timbuktu. I've seen similar ones in Senegal and in Mauritania. They vary widely in terms of what they are. Some are sort of small stone structures. Some are almost like little houses, for lack of a, a better description. And some are just simple tombs. And in some cases, they can be you know, sort of elaborate structures attached to mosques. What is the larger picture here? Because we are reading that the violence was done by three to four armed people. Is this kind of, you know, a small group of outliers, or is this the latest incident of a much larger problem going on there? What I'd say is that it's both the result of outliers and emblematic of a broader trend. The significant portion, and probably the majority of these armed militants, are not people from Mali in any, in any case. They're people that are coming from the outside. And that in and of itself is emblematic of a broader trend. If these assaults are known, and some have taken place previously on the mausoleums, why can't they be stopped? Because the people that are carrying them out are armed, and the people (laughs) that would like to defend them aren't. Thank you very much for explaining what's happening now in Timbuktu in Mali Butchware, historian at the University of Michigan. Thank you. Thank you. Religion is getting new prominence in Russia. As of this year, Russian fourth graders are required to take a religion class. They do get a choice, though. They can choose classes on Orthodox Christianity, Islam, Judaism, Buddhism, secular ethics, and world religions. Most of the Russian students identify as Orthodox Christians. But as Matthew Brunwasser reports, most fourth graders are not choosing that class. The fourth graders in this basis of Orthodox culture class are discussing some pretty heavy-duty concepts. God is a creator, the teacher explains. How do you understand this? What does it mean, she asks. A small girl answers, 
he created the whole world. This little classroom in St. Petersburg is one of the fruits of a two decades long battle by the Russian Orthodox Church to introduce religious education into every school in Russia. Church spokesman Selavold Chaplin says it was a tough slog. We went through sometimes emotional discussions with some state officials, some members of the pedagogical bureaucracy, which is still very much Soviet-minded. In the end, Chaplin says, the church is pleased with the outcome. I think both children and their parents understand that such an education brings more ethics into the life of a child and a family. It brings more understanding of what is the difference between a Muslim and a Jew and a Christian and an unbelieving person. But the new course wasn't what the church bargained for. Analysts say the church had to accept compromise with the deeply secular Russian state bureaucracy. The church initially pushed for religious classes only on Russian Orthodox Christianity. While polls find that between 70 and 80 percent of Russians consider themselves Orthodox believers, many are clearly uncomfortable mixing religion and secular education. Nationwide, only a third of parents chose the class on Orthodoxy for their children. Mother Natalia Sapruga, who considers herself a devout Orthodox Christian, says religion doesn't belong in public schools. We think religion is a really private matter, and religious education should start in the family and continue in the church. That's why we chose the secular ethics course that's helping our children growing up with qualities like honesty, kindness, and justice. At this basis of secular ethics course, the class is discussing Abraham and his importance to both Jews and Muslims. The class is the most popular of the six choices, both nationally and at this school. In fact, here, only four out of the 110 fourth graders take the Russian Orthodox class. Teacher Natalia Savinova says the class may be so popular because it goes beyond religion. She says parents want their children to be more moral people, but don't feel confident in their ability to teach them at home. Uh, this class has been introduced, I think, because families don't give enough time to the upbringing of their children, and they have placed this responsibility on the shoulders of the school. The third most popular course is a survey of world religions. Political commentator Konstantin von Egger says the Russian Orthodox Church may not have gotten what it had hoped for, but he commends the church's efforts to make itself more relevant in today's society. Our hierarchy cannot just sit and think that because we are, in theory, an Orthodox majority country, they can have their cup of coffee. As a national church, Russian Orthodoxy has never had to compete with other faiths, von Eggert says, until now. He says the fight for hearts and minds will make the church stronger. However Russian parents choose to teach religion to their children, it probably won't be through education in public schools. For The World, I'm Matthew Brunwasser, St. Petersburg. This is PRI, Public Radio International. I'm Lisa Mullins. Coming up on The World, a little-known chapter in the history of gay marriage. This one dates back to 1975. And we'll hear why some American men are in high demand to officiate at Japanese weddings. I'm white, I'm young, and that's it. That's the only thing that they care about. I'm white, I'm young, that's it. I'm a photo priest. 
I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH in Boston. Massachusetts was the first state to legalize same-sex marriage back in 2003. But about 30 years before that, a handful of couples got legally married in Boulder, Colorado. Tony Sullivan and Richard Adams were among them. Mr. Adams died earlier this month at the age of 65. Tom Miller is making a documentary film about Richard Adams and Tony Sullivan. Tom Miller, first, tell us their story. Um, Richard and Tony met in 1971. Um, Richard was working in uh, Los Angeles, and Tony from Australia was there um, on vacation, and they met at a gay bar called The Closet. And they weren't looking for love, but they fell in love. And that began a romance that lasted over 42 years. But the problem was that Richard is Filipino-American and Tony being Australian. If you're gay, there is no way of bringing your same-sex partner into the United States as part of a couple under the immigration service. So they had to figure out a way to stay together. So to clarify, Richard Adams, who's the partner who passed away, was born in the Philippines. He moved here with his family when he was about 12 years old. So was he a U.S. citizen? Yes, he was a U.S. citizen. and he was adopted by his mother's American um, husband and became uh, a citizen in 1968. So that, that was never in question. It was more that Tony Sullivan, who he met in 1971, was Australian. They got married in 1975. I'm, I'm not sure that it's widely known that there were indeed same-sex couples who, who married legally uh, before Massachusetts um, allowed it almost 10 years ago. There was a very courageous um, county clerk in Boulder, Colorado, named Clela Rorick's. She's not a gay or lesbian, but she was a feminist. And when another couple approached her about getting a marriage license, she thought long and hard, and she felt so discriminated against being a woman that she felt that she could not possibly deny two men getting a marriage license. So she checked with the local government, and she found that it was not illegal. And so over a period of six weeks, she issued six marriage licenses, Tony and Richard being one of them. So they were legally married in Colorado. But was it recognized anywhere else, including by the federal government? No, it's never been recognized by the federal government. That's the problem because Richard and Tony heard about these marriage licenses on the Johnny Carson show. And so when they heard that they could get a marriage license, they thought, well, if we can get a marriage license, we can apply for Tony to be Richard's spouse and get a green card for him. So they got married in 1975. As you say, they wanted to get permanent resident status for the Australian, for Mr. Sullivan. So immediately they applied to the Immigration and Naturalization Service. If they were man and woman, legally married, that would have been no problem, correct? No problem. Um, It would have taken some time, but they would have gotten a green card. But when they applied, about six months later, they got a letter back from the INS Immigration Service stating that you have failed to establish that a bona fide marital relationship can exist between two faggots. That was what it actually said. That was the official letter from the INS? Official letter from the INS. We think about uh, same-sex marriage as being still controversial uh, right now, less so than in 1975. But what was going on at the time in 1975 in this country, in this area? The gay and lesbian movement was just starting. At that time, gays and lesbians were just trying to be recognized and trying to be left alone and trying to be seen as, as regular people in this country. And usually they were in the closet, but they started you know, coming out of the closet, so to speak. But marriage rights and immigration rights really weren't being thought about by very many people, except for Richard and Tony and a handful of other people. 
And actually, that's one of the very interesting things about this case, that the issue of gay marriage and the current immigration debate overlap so much. Uh, I mean, they were issues then. They are certainly issues now. That's why my film is called Limited Partnership, because that's exactly what our relationships are, limited partnerships. They're not recognized by the federal government to this day, so that even in states now where you can be legally married as a gay or lesbian, you still do not have federal immigration rights or any of the other federal rights. So how did they live together then uh, here in the United States? They applied for that green card. They got that letter back. And they were outraged. And so they decided to sue the federal government for Tony to be recognized as Richard's spouse. And they were the very first couple in U.S. history to file case in federal court seeking equal marriage rights. And they went over a 10-year struggle to fight their cause, and they lost every case. And in 1985 was the final verdict, and it was a two-to-one ruling with the judge writing the majority opinion named Judge Anthony Kennedy, who later was appointed to the Supreme Court, who was the final judge that ordered Tony deported. And so in 1985, they had to leave the country. And so they had no place to go because at that time, Australia did not have rights for same-sex couples to move there as well. Plus, they had an anti-Filipino. It was sort of like a white-only immigration policy for Australia. And so they couldn't get in and stay there together. So they decided that their home and everybody else was back in the United States. And so they came back to the United States and they sort of lived underground. What about the surviving partner, Tony Sullivan, now? Um, Can you tell us about his legal status, whether or not he can stay here in the U.S.? It's going to sort of depend on what happens with the Supreme Court in June when they both rule on the legality of gay marriage in California and or marriage around the United States and on the marriage rights of legally married gay couples for the constitutionality of the Defense of Marriage Act. And the ironic thing about that whole thing is that Judge Anthony Kennedy, the same judge that deported Tony in 1985, is a swing vote for this issue, these two issues, again in June. Thank you. Tom Miller, we very much appreciate it. Thank you very much. Tom Miller is making a documentary about Richard Adams and Tony Sullivan. It's called Limited Partnership. We've got a preview of the documentary at theworld.org. Now on to a different kind of marriage ceremony. In Japan, Western-style weddings are big business. Most Japanese are not Christian, and yet many of them opt for so-called white weddings, complete with a gown, the flowers, and the Christian minister. Problem is, genuine Western ministers are in short supply. So to meet the demand, wedding companies have had to lower the bar. Sam Harnett reports from Nagasaki. Yup, that's Pachelbel's Canon in D. It must be a wedding. But instead of a church, we're in the lobby of a large hotel in Nagasaki. It's completely rigged to look and sound like the real deal. There's a big cross, white fabric hanging everywhere, and even an organ, choir, and string quartet. One other detail, there's a white guy behind the podium. He's playing the part of the minister. Wayne Hamilton leads the couple and the guests through a lightning speed ceremony in both English and Japanese. There's some hymns, a few sayings, and finally, the big moment. Ladies and gentlemen, I now pronounce husband and wife. Congratulations. Okay, but they aren't really married. This is a mock ceremony. The hotel is just photographing it to advertise its wedding services. They've even got a young, photogenic white model to pose as the groom. It's a common advertising scheme to sell the white wedding fantasy to women here. Most big hotels offer these kinds of wedding services, 
you see their ads all over the country. The movie set chapels, churches built like Disneyland castles, and happy brides in picture-perfect wedding dresses. Basically, the Japanese social concept of a wedding is fashionable. It's fashion. Nils Olsen is a Christian missionary from Washington State and one of the few ministers in Japan that's actually ordained. He's been doing weddings here for 20 years to supplement his missionary income. When I first started, they paid me per wedding 30,000 yen. And 30,000 yen right now is around $400. That is buku bucks. Since wedding providers started hiring any old white person to be minister, Olsen's pay has been cut in half. But for him, it's about more than just the money. He spends a few hours with the couple, introducing them to Christianity and rehearsing the ceremony. Most stand-in ministers devote far less time. Unordained people, you know, the Tom, Dicks, and Harrys out there, it's just a job to them. And these days, there aren't many qualifications for the job. I'm white, I'm young, and that's it. That's the only thing that they care about. I'm white, I'm young, that's it. So I'm a photo model, is what I feel like. I'm a photo priest. Here's one of those Toms. He's an American student in Japan who does weddings for the same reason he teaches English, money. Tom doesn't want to give his real name because he isn't sure what he's doing is legal. I'm not ordained. I'm not religious. I don't understand anything that I'm reading in the actual ceremony. Even so, as long as his visa allows him to work, Tom's wedding gig is totally legit. Marriage ceremonies in Japan are completely separate from all the legal stuff at City Hall. Anyone can officiate even someone who feels a little out of place. I feel completely ridiculous. And I feel at any moment, what I'm doing is just going to be real to them. An English friend got him the job. He gave Tom the priest outfit and a binder full of notes. For the first few weddings, Tom was really nervous. Am I pronouncing everything correctly? Does my English sound English enough? Like, should I, be, should I raise my voice more or should I lower it? What kind of thing would an actual priest do? But he soon realized Everyone was nervous and confused. The only thing he really needed to do was to make sure the couple got the right rings on and knew when to kiss. The organizers, they told him to say that part with a really thick Japanese accent. Kiss it. Kiss it. You may kiss it, the bride. Because otherwise they don't understand and they don't kiss. They don't do anything. They just wait for me and they look at me awkwardly. As soon as the ceremony is finished, Tom strips down to his t-shirt and jeans and he sneaks out of the ornate chapel through a back door. On the way out, someone hands him an envelope with about $200 in yen. When I tell him that real ministers used to make twice that, his eyes widen. That would have been great, he says. It's really expensive to live here. For The World, I'm Sam Harnett, Nagasaki. Our GeoQuiz today begins in the Norwegian city of Bergen. The composer Edvard Grieg was born there and walked its narrow streets. Bergen bills itself as the gateway to the fjords. Those fjords and Grieg's music may be some of the reasons Bergen earned a spot on UNESCO's World Heritage List. What we're looking for today, though, is not on land. Say you got in a helicopter and flew due west from Bergen over the deep fjords and the sheer cliffs along Norway's coast. Pretty soon you'd be out over the water. But which body of water? That's what we're asking. The sea in question also borders Britain, Holland, and Denmark, to name just a few spots. And it's been long the site of an important European shipping lane as well as a major fishery. We're going to be back with the answer in just a few minutes.
Nigeria, Christmas and New Year's are celebrated with fireworks. Today, that tradition took a terrible turn. An explosion at a fireworks warehouse sparked a huge fire in a crowded neighborhood of Lagos. At least one person was killed and many others were injured. The BBC's Tomi Aladipo is in the region. The area is um, very densely populated. Uh, there are lots of uh, buildings in, in narrow streets. Uh, you know, most of the buildings there are probably about four or five stories high, uh, and these people have um, stalls, lots of stalls where they sell all kinds of things from clothes to food to electronics uh, that you can find there. And a lot of the people, the traders there, also live in the same buildings. So you find people who've got um, their shops downstairs and live upstairs. Uh, but it, you, in some of those buildings as well, you find a lot of rooms. You know, a room could hold about about a dozen people, so it's very, very densely populated. Uh, and um, so when the fire began, when the explosion went off and the fire began, there were lots of people who came around to see what was going on, uh, but um, I believe there were also many people in the in the affected buildings. In that way, it's kind of surprising that, that the, the uh, death toll is so limited, at least right now. Um, were people evacuated? Uh, how, did, how did it happen that there were not even more injuries? Well, uh, from what I saw, at least, um, the the, the plume of smoke which came out of, of, of the place was not very large at first, uh, but you could see the fireworks, the sparkle sort of going off. Uh, and then after a while, the fire got bigger and bigger. And then there was a big bang and uh, which went off and then the fire started spreading to other buildings. So I think in that time, people would have uh, been able to get out, um, you know, in, in time. Um, also, the emergency workers said they had a hard time getting in because of the thousands of people who had gathered around to have a look uh, to see what was going on. And there were lots of people gathered around with their mobile phones, taking photos and video footage. But at least, I guess, since it started off slowly, people had a chance to escape. Is the, the, uh, has the cause been pinpointed as the fireworks that were kept in this warehouse? You mentioned that there was a large bang at one point before there were uh, bigger plumes of smoke. It's not clear exactly where this all began. Uh, even the, the, the security agencies um, are still on the scene, actually, still carrying out investigations, but nobody seems to know what exactly uh, started it off. We understand, Tommy, that uh, Nigerian police recently banned the use of certain types of fireworks during Christmas and New Year. Was, was this incident uh, and concerns about safety around fireworks warehouses one of the reasons for that ban? Uh, yes, it, there had been, you know, lots of smaller accidents all around, and, and people considered these fireworks quite a menace, uh, not just because of the accidents, but also because of the noise. Because in Nigeria, around uh, between Christmas and, and New Year period, for probably about four weeks uh, there or thereabout, uh, there's just an ongoing day and night, you know, lots of young people getting out on the streets and letting off these fireworks. In fact, right now I can still hear a couple uh, not too far away from where we are. Okay. Thank you very much. With the latest from Lagos, Nigeria, Tomi Aladipo of the BBC. Thank you. You're welcome. I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World. Coming up, a symphonic take on the wine glass. But first, our geo-quiz today. We want you to know where you would be if you took a helicopter due west from the Norwegian city of Bergen. Well, head west to reach out to the North Sea. The North Sea is the answer to our quiz. It's also home to large deposits of high-quality crude, and there are plenty of offshore oil rigs to take advantage of that. The weather out there can be fickle in the North Sea, so it gets interesting out there this time of year, as you can hear in this audio snapshot. Hi, I'm Espen Bergersen. 
I'm working on an offshore oil rig. We fly from Bergen and it's 45 minutes out in the North Sea. And it's um, my working place two weeks on and four weeks off. We drill wells and we, uh, we produce oil and gas. We work shifts, 12 hours a shift, uh, 24 hours a day. Yeah. yeah sometimes we have storms uh, offshore, uh, which is really, really kind of scary sometimes because the waves, they are, get really, really big and they smash into the platform. And you just feel it. That can be a bit frightening sometimes. Last Christmas, it was really, really bad weather. It was, uh, the waves was 28 meters high at the highest. It was, it was frightening. I live in northern Norway, a place called Tromsø, far, far north in Norway. So I travel around, take photos of birds and wildlife around my place where I live. Arctic birds uh, like puffins, whales like humpback whales, killer whales, which is, which is around in my area just now. And when you have the humpback whales and killer whales so close, it's just amazing because you can stand on land and you can have the whales feeding on the herring really, really close to land. I've been lucky. This place where I live, it's um, far, far north of the Arctic Circle. So in the wintertime, we have uh, northern lights. It's difficult to take photos, but the, the light and the colors of the skies can be really, really nice. Yeah, so we have this picture uh, for you all listeners of the world. Uh, it's from my parents' place at Andøya. And in the front, we have the sea, uh, you have the waves, and you have a long shutter speed uh, to capture the northern lights. Uh, it's the greenish, nice color. And it's uh, it's twisted around the island, kind of. So here we go. So happy new year and gott nytår. This is Espen Bergersen speaking from an oil platform in the North Sea. And you can see those photos he was speaking of, including shots of the Northern Lights at theworld.org. We're ending today's program with the sound of a glass harp. It's an assortment of wine glasses you run your fingers over to make different notes. Two classically trained musicians from Poland were so intrigued by the sound, they quit their day jobs with a symphony orchestra, and they built what just may be the biggest glass harp in the world. The pair performs using the name Glass Duo, and Alexa Dvorsen met them in Gdansk. Anna and Arik Szafranietz used to perform with the Baltic Philharmonic Orchestra. She played violin, he played trumpet. Neither had ever heard of the glass harp when they decided to build one just for fun. That was more than 10 years ago. And it was like a musical joke, you know. We didn't treat it very serious. At the beginning, it was just a physical experiment, not musical. We didn't know that it has so huge capability. Imagine angels' voices like an angel's choir, angel's music. Especially in this piano mazurka by 18th century composer Karol Szymanowski, which Anna and Arik adapted for glass. Most people are familiar with the eerie sound that emerges when they rub their finger around the rim of a wine or champagne glass. Now imagine almost 60 of them, ranging from tiny shot glasses to deep goblets, placed in three rows on a sloping table. They're all empty. 
The pitch is determined by the size and grind of the glass. Anna plays the upper register, Arik plays lower, but only after the all-important hand-washing with distilled water. This is the kind of ritual, because we have to use a special soap, which is a very ordinary soap, without any cream inside. When you hear this sound between the fingers, it makes the same sound on the glasses. That's the sound you want? Yeah. Ah, so now we can start. How do you warm up when you're starting to practice? Uh, we have some pieces which are good for practicing from the beginning of our rehearsal. For example, one piece which is, how to say, seems to be very simple, but sometimes it's very difficult for us. So we, we start with those notes. Now, you were crossing over each other just now. Do you ever decide, okay, left over right, or you move yeah, over? Or yeah. If it's a very simple melody, you can play with whichever you want, left or right. But when it's more difficult, we write it in our notes, and it's the only way you can play it, for example. It seems to be easy, but it's not. <laughs> <laughs> I would never have suggested that. <laughs> Besides original compositions, Glass Duo's repertoire includes their own arrangements of hits like Fragile by Sting and Oscar Piazzolla's classic Libertango. From Italy to India, Spain to Singapore, concert audiences find Glass Duo's music mesmerizing which is fitting because a German physician discovered hypnosis by using the sound of the glass harp to heal his patients back in the 18th century. His name was Franz Mesmer, and yes, that's where the word mesmerize comes from. For the world, this is Alexa Dvorsen in Gdańsk, Poland. You can watch the nimble fingers of the glass duo perform the dance of the Sugar Plum Fairy. It's at theworld.org. From the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH in Boston, I'm Lisa Mullins. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH, supported by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, dedicated to the idea that all people deserve the chance to live healthy, productive lives. GatesFoundation.org.
the Rita Allen Foundation, investing in transformative ideas in their earliest stages to leverage their growth and promote breakthrough solutions to significant problems. Online at RitaAllen.org and by the PRI Trust for Innovation, which enables informed risk-taking in the creation of new content for public radio. Donors to the Trust include Marguerite Steed Hoffman, the Tagney Jones Family Fund, and the Rose Family Fund. PRI Public Radio International